Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Constructive Voices. I'm Steve Randall. I hope you had a great Christmas. And as we head towards 2022, in this episode, we're looking back at the great guests and topics that we've covered since launching in the spring. As always, Peter Finn, Pete the Builder is here too. Pete, can you believe we're at episode 20 already? Unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, what, what a year it's been, Steve. It's been brilliant. And uh, like the, the new year is ahead and... You know, we're all going to hit the gym. We're all going to get super fit, and we're all going to <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> we're all going to solve all the construction issue problems coming up. We've covered so much since we launched earlier in 2021, and we're going to be looking at some of the topics and some of the uh, the great episodes that we featured. Really, just the breadth of topics that we've covered over the last not even a, a year. Actually, we've done 20 episodes, but because we do at least two a month, we've been doing this since April, and it's really flying. Yeah, it's, it's gone great, Steve. And look, again, I, I really would like to take this opportunity to thank all of our guests that came on throughout the year. They've been brilliant. And we, we were so lucky. Like, I mean, like the level of guests that we got on was, was off the charts. It was it was brilliant to meet people who are really at the top of their game and really well respected in the industry and able to give us so much insights and so much behind the scenes that people just never get to hear or see or understand unless they listen to something like this. So it, it, it was really, really good. It's hard to pick them out, but I think that we did have some really top guests. We basically traveled the globe in the year gone and, and touched base with so many different people. I was going to ask you for your favorite episode of the year, but I think that's like picking your favorite child, isn't it? I don't think that's that's something that would be fair <laughs> to do. But we, we have talked about lots of different things and just, you know, just randomly picking out some of the ones as I look through the list of episodes. I mean, we, we had Professor Michael Parkinson on, for example, talking about the uh, proposed Everton Football Club uh, site and the redevelopment. We talked to Darshil Shah about uh, different materials, biomaterials in the construction industry. We talked to Simon Dunkling about onerous construction contracts. Just so many things. Construction has got an endless uh, amount of facets to it. It's not just build a house type of a scenario going on here. Like We touch on so many different aspects of construction, everything from how things get done, how can we do things better, how can we improve technology, how can we do things more sustainably, how can we be more efficient, how can we protect ourselves in contracts? And that's what makes our show so interesting. Well said, Pete. Well, let's listen to some of the important takeaways that our guests have shared this year. In episode six, we were delighted that Professor Michael Parkinson joined us to talk to Constructive Voices Henry MacDonald about the proposed Everton Stadium project, an important step in Liverpool's regeneration. The river made Liverpool the richest city in the greatest empire the world had ever seen outside of London. The collapse of the docks in the 60s and 70s and 80s dragged Liverpool down. And for 30 years, Liverpool turned its back to the water, its back to the city. When the Development Corporation got there in the 80s, we started to see the role of the river and the waterfront. And encouraged by Europe, we realised it was a terrific asset. Now Evan Football Club have got these hugely ambitious plans to put one of the most sustainable, greenest stadia in one of the most challenging parts of Liverpool City and City Centre, which is North Liverpool. So it is a project, which we can talk about the numbers in due course, which would transform 
the worst part of the waterfront. It's currently derelict and neglected. The only thing that's near the dock is actually the local sewage treatment factory. It is a part which is very close to North Liverpool, which grew up on the docks. And when the docks decline, it fell. And therefore, that part of the city has the worst economic social problems of any bit of Liverpool city region. And it is physically not more than one mile from the regenerated city centre. So, Evan Football Club, having tried to develop a new stadium for a long time and failed, and needing to develop a stadium because it's a marvellous place, but old and too small, have got a grand project to invest in Bramley Dock to make a really high-quality building which respects heritage, which would form a huge anchor in North Liverpool, would tie that part of the city at Bramley Moor, which is the furthest part of the old docks, back into the city centre and would be a driver of development in that one mile between Bramley Moor and the, frankly, the liver buildings. There's already quite a lot of development going on there because of Peel Waters, Peel Company, and there's a lot of residential stuff and some office stuff, and that's, that's taking place. But the football stadium would be a huge economic driver. I mean, we could talk about the figures about economic impact. It would be a terrific heritage thing. It would be a great visible project which would attract tourists, and it would physically anchor and ensure that the growth of the city went back out into the parts which had failed. So huge symbolic significance, huge cultural significance, huge physical significance, um, and hugely exciting. And at the other end of the waterfront, that has now been developed in the south side of the city. So what Liverpool has in prospect are two major developments one north, one south, which themselves would be hugely significant, but would fill in the rest of the river down to the city centre. This is Liverpool's new great project. Constructive Voices. Sustainability and green building is one of the recurring themes on the podcast. And in episode 13, we heard from two women who are leading lights when it comes to creating sustainable change within the construction industry. Emma Nicholson and Sumeli Aruafor. Well, I've been in the industry about over 22 years, and I think that there's definitely been a rise of women in sustainability kind of careers. And I think increasingly we're going to see more women in leadership roles over the next five to 10 years in in the future. And I've also seen groups like my own, because I set up a a network platform like Women in Sustainable Construction Property way back in 2010, 2011, which has grown and there are other groups as well that have developed such as mine there's women in bre there's wibsy which is you know associated with sibsy there's women in planning there's women in sustainability so there's quite a few of these network groups that have now become very very established and i think more and more businesses 
are going to realize, as uh, Molly said, you know, the need for diversity within the organizations. We are going to see more women in, hopefully, in leadership roles. And also getting on board with regards to the net zero journey. Uh, it's important for organizations to be on board and to be leaders uh, rather than as followers, because otherwise they're just going to get swept along by legislation. The question is, does your business that you work for, does it want to be a leader or does it want to be a follower? I think one thing that potentially Emma was alluding to is um, that there's been a rise in the number of women within the construction industry over the years. And I have to I have to back that up. When I was studying for architecture, there were there were a handful of us girls on the course um, by the first year, a good chunk of them dropped off the course. And so I tend to be very cautious with generalizations because it then places a silent burden on a certain group to effect change. I think a lot of times a passion for sustainability tends to be driven by a desire to improve the fidelity of the Earth's environments and resources. Sometimes sometimes people are naturally sensitized to touch the Earth lightly. Other people couldn't care less, haven't thought about it not because they don't care. It's just not something that, you know, taps their minds in any way. But some people are just really, really um, very keen to leave a livable world for the coming generation. Sometimes because maybe because women bear children and there's an extra that they care more about the earth and then they want to live a legacy. But, you know, children are, are, are crafted by fathers and mothers, men and women. And, and um, I feel like the job of preserving the world is for everyone. Um, there just needs to be even more room on the table, the decision makers, the leadership, just like Emma was talking about. There needs to be more room for women at those uh, levels of authority because you only understand your lived experience. As a man, you will understand your lived experience or you will extrapolate based on a wife or a mother or a sister. It's what you observe that you will know. And so I think that for us to collectively contribute all of our ideas, all of our innate uh, natural knowledge and, and um, ways of thinking, everyone needs to come on the table and do that work. And space needs to be made for women to contribute to that conversation and to move that forward. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. Attracting new talent into the industry remains a challenge, and in episode 12, we got the insights of Kevin McLaughlin, MBE, owner of K&M McLaughlin Decorating, which has an annual turnover of more than £6 million and a company that heavily invests in the apprenticeship scheme. In 2010, Kevin created K&M Painting and Decorating College as his business needs weren't being met by the local colleges. He spoke to Henry MacDonald about why young people may not consider construction. You've got a kind of double whammy, the kids. They're looking at the construction industry training board. This is the industry, how great it is. And believe me, I think it's great. It's been absolutely great for me and lots of my friends. But businesses are not taking on apprentices. Whether it's going to change, but they haven't done for years. You've only got to look at the statistics. They're just not interested. What do you think is holding them back from entering the, the industry? Conditions. I mean, if you look now, we live in a modern world, or we always, no matter what level you come in at, we're in the modern world. But the modern world, is, as it is now compared to when I came in, there's more opportunity for, for better types of jobs, the digital world. 
Um, it, it's a whole new world. People can sit at home on their computer and actually make money or try to make money. If you come into the industry, you've got to get up in the morning. You've got to be there. It, the conditions are not the greatest. And there's a generational gap, and we are not with that gap. And I'm not, and I'm not saying I know the answer. There is absolutely a difference in attitude from young people compared to when I went into work in the 70s. It's a different mindset. It's a different upbringing. It's a different education. It's a different priority. And I honestly do not know the answer, but that's the cohort that we're looking at to, to bring in. And it's not happening. Should the industry be more embedded in schools and colleges, you know, proper facilities, actual construction sites, if you like, to drum up the, the painters and decorators, the roofers, the electricians, the engineers, and so on of the future? Should you be going into the schools, having an almost permanent presence there, given the importance of the sector? Absolutely. There's a few points there. The schools are not very open to business, or they wasn't. I gave up personally. In Islington, I used to go to schools and give talks, gave up. Uh, teachers are not receptive to it. It's about Ofsted. If you're going to come into a trade, into the industry, uh, you don't need an O-level as a C of GCSE as they are now and whatever. You don't need it. And so they don't like that because they don't want their kids leaving. And it's been a big issue when kids had to stay on to their 18. The kids who don't want education, they, 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 they throw them off to an FE college and say, I'll do a construction course. They go in for a few hours a day and, and then they get a certificate at the end, which is worthless. And their work ethic is nil because they've never had to get up in the morning. And so now we're talking to kids 18, and I finished my four-year apprenticeship at 19 or 20. You're looking at kids now at 18, 19, beginning to start work, and they're behind on the back foot. They just don't want the conditions that we've got there. If they're capable of doing an A-level, they're not going to look at bricklaying and decorating and carpentry. That's absolute fact. Um, I've never had a kid with an A-level doing an apprenticeship with us, and we've had hundreds of apprentices over the years. We also spoke about engaging the next generation of construction talent in episode three. Josh Mathias is MD of the Hythe Group, who gave some advice for getting young people interested in the construction industry. Yeah, so we work with uh, local schools. Uh, to We offer work experience for uh, people that are coming to the point where they don't um, they're not going to carry on at school. I find it very useful for us as a business to learn um, about the type of people that are coming out of school today, but also it helps us educate the children on what is expected of this industry and what kind of things to expect when you're working in it. Uh, it's, it is very nerve-wracking bringing in a, um, a young person like that, but once you get the processes and everything in place, I think it allows you to teach them about us and then they go back to the school and talk about the things that they've done so if they've been able to make something, use a tool, or you can see the excitement. That's a really beneficial way of starting the process. With the parents in our community, they're very supportive of us as a business. We have a lot of recommendations from parents to other parents to help support their child. We bring them in, again, work experience, couple of weeks, get them to understand it, see if they're really interested in it. Because what you don't want to do is force a child to feel like they have to do it because they've committed time to you. So we're very open with them. We very much leave them to make the final decision. But once they make the decision, then we can go through the proper interview process and make sure that we feel they're ready for it or they got the right attributes. That's a very successful process for us. We promote a lot of apprenticeship success stories within our business. So we will interview our apprentices from start to finish, uh, people that have completed, that they've stayed on with the business. 
We've talked about how apprentices have gone from working for marine and now working for the building services side of things so that it attracts skills where they know that there's more options and they're not just going to be stuck working one area of an industry. They can cross their services into multiple industries. Another thing I've offered, which seems to attract or support the apprentices, is we all know that when a child is learning to drive, it's very expensive uh, for them and the tests are expensive. And of course, once you pass, the insurance is very expensive. So we as a business, we need them to pass their driving test to make them more versatile, more accessible, more um, flexible in where they can go and work. So we offer to pay for their driving lessons, their driving tests. Uh, once they pass, we then offer a pay increase to help contribute towards their insurance. This is something that it may seem small to everyone listening, but is a massive like, support for the person. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. Keeping up with the latest technology and how it can enhance and transform the industry is another thing we like to do on Constructive Voices. And if you've been wondering about how you might integrate mixed reality into your construction projects, in episode three, we spoke to Jordan Lorva of Trimble, who explained some of its possibilities. Whereas today it's more of a, you know, a check tool or a, hey, I need to make a phone call tool. Um, moving into an environment where you're actually wearing the device while you're doing a task. A couple construction examples, you know, within our application, we have the ability to do prefabrication while wearing the device. So imagine assembling a, a very complex design rebar cage on a prefabrication line and having a device like the HoloLens actually step you through step by step, but also in the correct location. Okay, put this stirrup here, put this stirrup here, put this piece of rebar here, tie this piece to this piece and, you know, leaving no room for, you know, user interpretation as to does this piece go on first or does this piece go on? Does this go here? Does it go here? But actually guiding you know, essentially a 3D IKEA manual overlaid onto your environment um, and, and guiding the user through that task. So you start to see these kind of two different silos of kind of proactive work and or, or active active work and passive work, where the device is enabling you to do your job better through proactively giving you instructions or showing you data over your environment, but it's also passively working in the background to understand your environment and, you know, read your blood pressure, what, you know, whatever, and, and be able to, you know, to help you out in those ways as well. Mental health is a big issue for society, and this has been exacerbated by the pandemic. In episode two, we spoke to Jenny Armstrong, MD of Construction Health and Wellbeing, who talked about how the industry has started to open up about mental health. It's been a really interesting time for mental health. I mean, obviously in society, there's been a lot of focus around mental ill health and, and, and are we doing the right things to, to the right support for people. Um, I think COVID's been a, a really big test for a lot of organisations. There's been, you know, some companies that have done quite a lot about mental health um, before the pandemic even started. And I think for those organisations that had spent some time really like looking at the stigma around mental health and starting people having conversations around it, I think they found probably dealing with the um, pandemic may be a little bit easier because they had the culture there. They had support networks in place, whether it's mental health first aiders or occupational health or you know line managers that are upskilled in what to do. So I suppose there's been you know probably a lot of organisations that hadn't really thought much about mental health in the past, and they've actually had to try and work 
quite quickly to put some things in place. And and things like this that actually take time to to evolve, and particularly around mental health, when the workforce have to really trust that what you're saying and having those conversations are, are really meant. So. Hopefully, I think for those organisations that probably hadn't done much in the past, they've all had a bit of a wake up call to say, actually, there's there's so much opportunity here that one to look after people. But also, if we put the right things in place and focus on positive mental health, then it really helps a business to thrive and be the best it can be. So health is now on the agenda where it was kind of always the, the poorer side of health and safety. So I'm hoping that a lot of organisations will say, you know, keep that conversation going and, and make sure they're really looking at health risks from a from the COVID perspective, but also from, from their general activities and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, I mean, I think the construction industry has really shown its resilience and they've you know, collaborated and, and worked together and, and achieved so much in such a short space of time. Um, and I think if we try to take that for mental health and um, prevention of work-related mental health issues, particularly, um, also things like working with dust and fumes, if we take the same approach that we've done, we've done for COVID and apply it to other hazards, then you know, hopefully this industry is going to be a really happy and healthy and positive place for lots of people to work. And, and some of those shocking statistics that we know that are there will start to see those declining. And, and hopefully, you know, people want to come and work in construction. It'll be a positive place to be. We also talked about mental health in episode four when James Rodoni, MD of Mates in Mind, joined us and spoke about the challenge of reaching self-employed construction workers. Well, Mates in Mind has a has a mission to reach seventy five percent of the construction industry by 2025. Um, And most of our work up to now has been very focused towards organizations and reaching down through organizations and their supply chain. Now, some of those people in that supply chain will be self-employed, and we, we know that we'll be reaching out to some of them. But nearly a third to a half of the sector are self-employed individuals. And, and I think we could do more as a charity to, to reach out to that audience. Now, we're very aware that the self-employed and sole traders and even micro businesses, they're time poor. Do they have that additional money to invest in a bit of training or a bit of support, etc.? So, we we want to provide this as a as a free service down the line to them, so that this is you know that this isn't going to impact on on their uh, on them financially. We're doing this work now um, with the IES, um, and um, there is no doubt going to be opportunities for us to kind of we're going to want to speak to people who are self-employed in the industry. Um, and, and if people, you know, if people are self-employed or in micro businesses or sole traders, then um, we'd love to hear from you because we'd love you to be a part of our working groups or to undertake some of the surveys that we're going to put out. Please come to our website and um, and fill in the contact form. Constructive Voices. Material scientist and Cambridge lecturer Darshil Shah was our guest in episode 15 to talk about biomaterials and he explained how using plant-based materials in building projects can help with the drive towards carbon net zero. There are quite a few ways, but most importantly, plant-based building materials, particularly engineered timber and plant fiber-based insulation or even other forms of materials, play a key role in reaching net zero ambitions by firstly enabling reductions in embodied energy, but also in operational emissions, while thirdly, storing carbon built in the structure. So there's a three-pronged approach to this. And the storing, the sequestering element is quite important. Plant materials store carbon and they do so during their growth phase. 
in general, plant materials store around 1.4 to 1.8 kilograms of carbon dioxide per kilogram of material, and they do so by releasing the oxygen for our benefit. And uh, of course, there are a variety of different plant-based materials, and some can be grown in higher densities, such as agricultural crops, uh, from which we can uh, obtain fibers, such as hemp and linen and straw. Um, but also some can grow at a much faster rate, such as bamboo. And therefore, there are some plant materials that, that can sequester, uh, capture carbon from the environment quite rapidly um, in a very short space of time. And using these materials in the built environment avoids emissions associated with the use of concrete and steel, for example. So there have been quite a few studies that demonstrate this, Switching to engineered timber construction at scale for new buildings, even in the UK, could result in dramatic embodied emissions uh, reductions. Uh, and so far, one of the issues has been, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, that embodied emissions are unregulated. And so far, they have been overlooked as well. And it's quite important that we try and get a grip on that. Uh, a 2020 study found that if 90% of the world's new urban buildings were constructed using engineered timber, about half of the embodied emissions associated with this construction could be avoided. And that's even before accounting for benefits associated with the long-term storage of carbon in these materials. In episode 10, Henry talked to sustainable architect Daniel Giaconetti about his work in green building and how Europe and the USA differ. Are those buying buildings in the U.S. prioritizing sustainability? Not being a political science major, I don't understand why this is so political, but it is, right? It seems to be that depending on your politics depends on how much you care about sustainable design. And so, you know, people like myself, if I were looking to buy a new home, right, I would be looking for something that was maybe net zero or passive house or solar panels on the roof for sure. And there are other people that just seem to have this rebellion against it. And I think it might be because there's a misconception that being pro-environment, pro-sustainability is anti-business. If we're going to protect the environment, then we're going we're gonna to cripple capitalism. It doesn't really prove to be true. I mean, the, um, that Yale index, what they found when they analyzed the data of all the different countries, was that countries that dedicate capital to an eco-friendly culture. So culturally, having all of the you know, citizens of the country really feeling that it's important, um, they're not only at the top of the list, but they also seem to have more robust economies. So you know, a conclusion that can be made there is that sustainable ethos right, applied to policy and business usually does well for both the economy and the people. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's not an anti-business strategy to be green. But I don't know that the, uh, particularly in the United States, I think there's a portion of the population that just doesn't know that or doesn't believe it. Do you think in the U.S. as well that construction firms, big and small, are they getting it? Are they getting the message? Do you think? For sure. Or is it still bottom line dollar? Construction firms are definitely getting it. Um, so we're, our firm is part of the American Institute of Architects large firm roundtable, which is sort of like uh, firms 50 and above, right? So the big firms. Mm -hmm. And I mean, some of these firms are huge, right? And have offices around the world. And I'm on a bunch of sustainability committees with uh, my peers in the other firms. And it's, it's all our industry is talking about. And in fact, the AIA did something a couple of years ago called the Big Pivot, where they basically said, 
all of their um, resources as our professional association were going to start to be devoted toward um, mitigating climate change. So the the architecture industry gets it, um, obviously, you know, engineering as well. And then even, you know, construction, our construction partners have really come to the table now too. I participate in a group called Sustainable Design Leaders um, through the website, buildinggreen.com. And they now have spinoffs and there's actually a group called Sustainable Construction Leaders. And they have a bunch of people from contracting firms across the country that are interested in are participating. So that's a really good sign that, you know, it used to be maybe a contractor would try to value engineer you out of something that costs a little bit more to be more sustainable. Um, now they might be the ones at the table bringing it up and saying, hey, we could we could do this more efficiently. What if we try this? So it's, it's really a, an interesting evolution that I think is only going to help us and, and get better with time. In episode eight, Shanine Bathina told us about the Coventry City of Culture Trust and how it was tasked with delivering the vision for City of Culture 2021, including some key construction projects. When you win the title of City of Culture, it's a chance for massive regeneration and redevelopment of the city. And so it's meant that the city has been prioritised for investment. Obviously, we've had to bid and pitch for that investment. Um, So we got something like £42 million towards transforming the public realm across the city. So over the last three to four years, a huge amount of investment has gone into the infrastructure of the city centre, the pavements, the roads, the street furniture, lighting schemes. And the most exciting thing, I suppose, for me is that we have had a team of um, curators who have been sitting inside the regeneration team at the city council, working with architects, with designers, uh, with construction teams, to really make sure that art is at the heart of that program right from the beginning. So thinking about, you know, if we want to create a new children's playground in the program, how can we um, how can we bring artists in to support that? So that's kind of one area, the kind of the public realm of the city. There's been a huge investment in cultural buildings. So uh, lots of investment from heritage funds, as well as Arts Council and DCMS funding towards, I suppose, upgrading some of the venues that exist. So the Herbert Gallery and Museum, the Belgrade Theatre, Warwick Arts Centre have all undergone huge construction programmes, again, over the last three to four years to make sure that they're kind of, I suppose, capitalised on this moment in time and making them fantastic places to visit for local people, but also visitors to the city. And alongside that, there's some new cultural buildings that are appearing. So there's the new Daimler powerhouse that's uh, being built um, in the canal basin, which uh, used to be the Daimler factory uh, in the car industry. And it's now a fantastic factory for art. And that's had a huge investment, which, you know, has been through a number of kind of growth funds from across the city. And so a big construction program and had a soft opening back in May, but we'll be opened officially in in August. And then I suppose there's been a lot of investment in the city in big projects like hotels, for example. So there's a number of new hotels opening. The Telegraph Hotel opened in May. That used to be the um, headquarters of the Evening Telegraph, which is a local newspaper. And it's sat empty for 20 or 30 years now. Um, And so it was a chance to really kind of redevelop that, turn it into a fantastic boutique hotel. Um, and other hotels popping up around the city as well. 
So we've seen a huge amount of investment across the city. Probably the biggest project is the new train station, costing, I think, in the, re- in the, in the region of 100 or 150 million pounds. And it's been a massive project that's been underway now for two or three years. Staying with urban regeneration, Gavin Tonne of Utexture was our guest in episode 11, talking about city-changing urban renewal projects and transformational virtual pre-construction technology. We've developed a platform called Utexture, which um, is in the first in the world in the virtual pre-construction space. And, and the way it uh, it's it's really aiming initially at, at home building, but the way virtual pre-construction enables urban renewal, it's the first time that we can use technology and all the power that it brings to bear to simulate the impact on a number of those categories. Design and procurement, so the ability to actually simulate and virtually try a building long before we have to commit to building it, and you use AI to optimise it. So that means we can actually have a look at a home. We can uh, select a few styles. We can try some options. We can check whether our furniture fits. We can have that priced in real time. We can connect carbon attributes to every item in that home. We can see how it's going to perform and we can understand that. Manufacturing innovation, you know, we when, once you create a digital twin and which, which sits at the heart of the virtual pre-construction, we can pull the attributes of every single product into that model. Uh, and so whether it's double glazed uh, windows or it's the insulation qualities or price, you know, we can understand how that whole uh, model is going to perform. And waste optimization. So for the very first, once you've got digital twin technology, for the very first time, you can start to lay out and optimize the way sheets are cut, the way tiles are used, the, the amount of waste that's created in doing that and look at using AI to optimise the, the layout of those sheets. You know, what we'll see in, in short succession is that the bigger parts of the industry who are suppliers and installers will have a price advantage by using cutting layouts and installing in certain ways, and the rest of the industry must follow. And so suddenly we can move the dial. So we're, we're the industry, we've, we've been reasonably good at reducing uh, or recycling we've been really bad at reducing waste. Um, and so, you know, even if you, you've got 30% of material being wasted, we can make a 20, 30, 40, 50% impact on that. We can make a huge difference to the uh, carbon footprint of construction. This is where virtual <laughs> pre-construction changes uh, the business of building uh, urban renewal. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. Inside Connections helps offenders to get a second chance in life. John Burton set up the organisation in 2017 and told us in episode four how Inside Connections works with offenders and construction companies to make that happen. The first question I get asked by any employer is, do you work with sex offenders? I can't work with sex offenders because I find... Two, two prisoners, you've got your normal type of prisoner who'll be in and out all the time, blah, 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 but then you've got your people who've got illnesses. Now, for me, I think anybody to do with kids, children, sex offences, stuff like that, it's a different sort of mindset than a normal prisoner going in and out, and I don't have the expertise to, to deal with all that. I deal with medium to low-risk prisoners. Not many people have had an arm around the shoulder and been pointed in the right direction. Now we've got a lot of companies on board. I've got tons and tons of statements, of feedback forms, of testimonials, and these are all off big, 
big companies who wouldn't even sort of dream of taking prisoners on before we've approached them, sat down with them, sure with what we've done. And we do it right. I run my courses like a boot camp because if I've put a two or three week course on, I don't want you turning up to my course four times late in three weeks because if you have, you won't be going for an interview with any of my uh, clients. You know, you need to be here on time. You need to leave on time. You don't use your phone while you're in training. Your phone goes in a locker. You've got to get them in a bit of a regimented way to say, right, listen, you want to change your life. You can't do it the way you're doing it this way. You've got to do it this way, and you've got to learn off us. We'll, we'll teach you the best way for you to get into work. The five key elements I, I work on is timekeeping. Your timekeeping is essential when, you, when you're going to work for companies. Attendance, always got to be right up on attendance because if you're off work, you're leaving your partner or your workmates with more work to do that day. Respect the health and safety on site. That's what your courses and your trainings for. You know all the health and safety hazards. You respect them. You respect the people who you're working with. If your boss tells you to do something, you don't confront him over it. He's not telling you in a bad way. He's telling you in a way to get the job done. You don't go saying, I'll do this and I'll do that. Again, that's what the courses is for. And then the fifth element is you keep your head down and work hard. You've got a good job where you progress in that job. And that's what I always say to the to the people coming in to work for the employers. And I say to the employers as well, we've got to make sure attendance and timekeeping is bang on. Health and safety is bang on. But what you've got to remember as well is you've got to respect the people you're working with as well. So I said, treat them with respect, speak to them, help them, learn them, build them up and let them become a good member of your site. And I, like I say, I have a, a relationship with all the directors, the managers and stuff like that. And while I sit with all the supply chain, that's exactly what I tell them. And I'll say to them, you give any of these boys one chance, I'll guarantee you they'll prove to you just how good and hard working these people really are. Constructive Voices. In yet another year when health has been paramount in our thoughts, Skanska's Director of Health, Safety and Wellbeing, Dylan Roberts, joined us in Episode 9. Dylan is part of an industry group steering health in the construction industry. And he said there are many challenges in keeping those working in the industry safe. I think the challenges come at many different levels, um, is what I'd say. I think you've got safety risks, you've got health hazards, uh, you've got well-being, and actually it's becoming extremely complex now. And we're also talking about design. And we're also talking about planning an, an organization and shifting the thoughts and, the, and our mindset away from has the person got the PPE that they require to undertake that job? Have they got the right tools to do that job? Which, of course, are necessary and important shifting that so that we're actually getting involved in the design stage and the planning stage is is a big challenge because people have to start working in a different way uh, and that's uh, that's one of the biggest challenges i think i could go into down to some technical challenges you know so our biggest risk in our in our business is um lifting operations and actually interestingly it's actually our biggest risk globally as well from a day-to-day site um, point of view, it's quite easy to pinpoint specific operations or tasks that need to be dealt with and, and managed. But taking that back two or three steps to designing it out and reducing the 
harm we might cause in terms of the chemicals that we're using or the dust that we're going to create. That that takes a different mindset, uh, and that that is a big um, a big challenge. Getting involved earlier on is is the biggest challenge, but it's by far the biggest opportunity as well as as I see it. Certainly for the clients, tier ones, tier twos, and then as, as of course as you get further into the supply chain partners and, and the small smaller organizations, that becomes far more difficult to articulate, you know, what off-site manufacturing might look like for somebody who's putting an extension on the house, for example. It's become very complex, I think. That's the bit that's um you know, making this shift is really very challenging. Because at the uh, and it's it's about changing people's behaviors and uh, and our approach to um to risk safer construction sites was also the focus of our very first episode back in april when we talked to michael bryant the commercial director of biosite systems limited many of the company's products have become vital during the pandemic for construction sites that need to find technological solutions to keeping their sites open and running as safely as possible Michael explained how the needs of the pandemic has led to a big positive for the implementation of tech-based safety solutions. Obviously, the pandemic has, has certainly accelerated the use of technology in construction. Um, it's opened people's eyes up because they've, they've had to make that change. Um, you know, people don't like change. Um, we, we, we know that. But this has been, you know, almost forced. So people have had to say, well, hang on a minute. You know, I've, got, I've now got a situation. I need to find a solution. So people's eyes have been opened up to, okay, well, I can adapt some technology to do that for me. Whereas previously, it would, you know, we'd have to do a fair bit of, of kind of lobbying and case studies and, and working with clients to kind of get that digitalization process. So we've seen a huge um, shift and adoption um, for the use of technology in construction. And I think that's just highlighted how resilient the industry can be and how those in construction can respond quickly and admirably to change. Um, construction is actually... Uh, you know, now could be held up as a you know great example of how to respond in a crisis and how to adapt of, of ways of working, but also continually adapt to ways of working. And you don't think there's sort of any going back to the way things were now? You think it's a, it's a matter of pushing forward? Um, yeah, there's pros and cons, of course. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the phrase "the new normal" keeps obviously being being thrown around, not just in this industry but in life as a, as a whole. Um, the industry was already on this on an adoption curve. Um, when it came to technology, and uh, we've seen that over the last few years, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about the shift from the, our customers' perception of what they purchased from us has moved away from, um, you know, back in the early days, you know, we were selling turnstiles and access control to construction sites. Uh, before the pandemic, it had moved away from that already. You know, it, it much more become about, um, you know, the data and the analytics and, and how they could make cultural changes um, to, you know, to use this data to make better informed decisions as a, as a business. That was already on um, an adoption curve, but COVID has certainly accelerated things uh, massively, forced people to see the benefits of it and, and it kind of forced that adoption. Um, and I say forced, obviously, people have wanted to adopt it, of course, but but they perhaps have adopted it a little earlier than they would have done, but also a little more aggressively than they would have done. I don't see people moving back because there is now a greater understanding of what that can do. We're actually seeing people want to push on further. So companies that eyes that have been opened up to the data that they can potentially get and how they can control things and how they can use technology and construction to enhance that, now they've sort of got, I guess, a taster of that. 
um, we're now getting questions thrown at us to say, well, hang on a minute, if we can do that, could, you know, could we do this and could we develop on top of that? And, and you know, how do we get visibility of, of all different types of things? Um, so I actually see it going the other way. I think I see it leapfrogging um, and excelling in that even more so. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. In 2021, with such a big focus on COP26, sustainability was a big topic for us on Constructive Voices. In two special episodes, 17 and 18, we brought you the highlights of our first event, the post-COP26 roadmap for the built environment. We were joined by an esteemed panel of industry experts who gave their perspectives on how we move forward in light of the requirements for more sustainable building. They also put questions to Victoria Kate Burrows, Advancing Net Zero Director at the World Green Building Council, who defined for us a net zero building. A huge amount of our work is helping to unpick what those definitions mean for, for different organisations, different people, different parts of the sector. But um, we've we've touched upon it already how many emissions the, the global building and construction sector is responsible for. It's, it's 40%. Um, and we ultimately have to get to complete decarbonisation by 2050. That's our goal. It's for the sector, all buildings, not to use any emissions at all, not to use any fossil fuels, to be completely energy efficient and comfortable and healthy and resilient and, uh, and equitable as a sector. Um, that is a huge challenge and something that cannot happen overnight. So for us, net zero is part of the journey, that, that formula of being completely emission free from the um, building and construction sector is simply not feasible in every type of building and every type of, of country. In fact, some regulations prevent and, and limit the amount of renewable energy you can generate on site. So there's real barriers in the way. So for us, net zero is part of that journey. It means maximizing the reductions in terms of energy consumption, emissions, and also material consumption and resource use, as we've heard, extremely important. And then whatever you can't reduce, whatever those residual emissions are, that there's options there for you to either procure renewable energy from outside of your site or offset those remaining emissions. And that's the net part of the equation. And we do see that that process, that offsets are a really important and fundamental part of that transition to help us also achieve wider social and environmental change. Two of our panel from the event returned in episode 19 to talk more about their focus, reducing the use of plastics in the construction industry. Wendy Jones and Neil Maxwell of Changing Streams gave their view on whether COP26 had helped progress their work. My thought is it's 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 a slow burn. I don't think COP26 made a dramatic impact on people's understanding of the, of the effects or the need to reduce plastic per se. I think there were other bigger things on the agenda. Oh, I, I agree, Wendy. The emphasis this year, quite rightly, was on the carbon reduction. Uh, but as I said earlier, we need to bring that plastic question into the equation because it's not a binary option. You, can't, you, you shouldn't really lead on one and not, not really consider the other. And considering SUPs in isolation to say that uh, dealing with it is not sufficient enough, we do need a lot more leverage on that. We do need to we do need to improve, increase awareness about it, and bring that into the equation a lot stronger. Now we know that the carbon reduction program is now being looked at within the planning process. So it will become a condition of planning at some point in the future. We think in quite the near future, that's what we hear. As part of the planning approval process, you'll be required to achieve XYZ carbon goals. 
well, we'd like the plastic element to be attached to that as well. So watch this space because that's what we're hoping for. So I think Wendy's right. There'll be more on plastic in Sharm El Sheikh. And I think that's when we start to really raise the profile of the the damage that's being done. I think also there's the issue that, you know, at the moment there's quite a, a feeling with plastic, well, if we can recycle it, that's good. And I think the answer is that recycling plastic prevents it being single use, whether it's something that you've used once in a building or whether it's single use packaging. But at the end of the day, that plastic has been taken out of the ground as fossil fuel and it is going to end up either in our environment as microplastics or it is going to end up going for pyrolysis to be turned into fuel or it is going to be incinerated producing greenhouse gases. Recycling is the answer to stuff that's already in the system because it's giving it another use. But allowing that to be a reason for producing and using more plastic is not the answer. For episode 14, we discuss the importance of affordable social housing with top architect James Mary O'Connor, who addressed the balance of home buyers between sustainability and price. Cost is really important, but I think if you can show the benefit, we recently put in gas water heaters and in, in, uh, gasless water heaters, electric heaters in, in our house and, and our neighbours. And our bills are down to a fraction of what they were. The initial investment was a little higher, but the monthly cost has has gone down to about 20% of what it was before. So I think there's an educational element to that to show how um, solar power, alternative ways of doing things is actually not only more environmentally better, but it actually economically can actually benefit you also. So... In long term, you can be better off going green, go going sustainable. I can actually oh. save money. Oh, yes. I think eventually, yeah. I mean, this country, hopefully with President Biden, there's a whole refocus. Electric just makes total sense uh, for transportation now. Uh, green, but we need, a, we need a larger piece of the economy going that way. Extracting resources is, is not the way forward. But I think we need a bigger momentum there. And I think the will is there. I mean, it, it, I think it could be a very exciting time for this country. And and uh, I know England is too very focused on um, green technology and, and the future. Constructive voices. Hopefully the contracts you're presented with are clear and fair. But that's not always the case. And in episode 16, Simon Dunkling of Arbicon warned about the dangers of onerous construction contracts. So in terms of onerous construction contracts, really a lot of it comes down to risk allocation within the contract. And it's making sure that the contract that gets signed by the parties accurately reflects the intent of the parties going into it. Quite often that's the case, but then also it might not be. You see there's a number of standard forms which are used in the industry, which are designed to fairly apportion risk between the parties. But a lot of companies will use their own bespoke forms or they'll start with a standard form, then heavily amend it and change the clauses and the risk profiles within the contracts. What you end up with is a contract which has more risk placed on one party than the other. Obviously, usually it's uh, the party who's receiving the contract rather than writing it who ends up with the most risk placed on A lot of companies, unfortunately, just don't necessarily read the contracts they're sent you know, or really understand what they're signing up to. A lot of people check 
you know, that the price is right and the date they're getting paid is right, but then don't really dig into the nitty gritty, which is where they can be exposed to a lot of risk and, uh, and lose a lot of entitlements potentially. So we've taken a whistle-stop tour through our 2021 episodes and all are, of course, available on your favourite podcast app and at constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. But as we head into 2022, there'll be a lot more to come from us and, of course, in the industry. Pete, the builder is still here. Pete, what's your big focus for the new year? Well, uh, I don't think I'm going to get into Westlife for the moment, so I'm, I'm going to have to just keep <laughs> keep on putting on my, my workwear and, and, and get going out there and doing my stuff. Look, again... It's, it's changing times in, in construction, but it's very exciting times. At the moment, there is so much work out there and there are so many opportunities to, to go in, in so many different areas. Um, I, I'll go, I'm, I've got my TV show um, that's just being finished. That was very successful and it got huge ratings. And um, I, I think they're talking about it, it may be spreading to, to, to other parts of the world as well. I don't think I'll be going with it, but I think the concept will. And uh Again, it's it's brilliant to be involved in something um, so positive like that. I, I, I'm looking forward to doing the new series of, of Home Rescue next year. Um, I've got some really exciting projects on as well from for my for my business. Um, some really good conservation projects, basically restoring old buildings that um, have huge heritage. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into them. I have a small development going on as well of 16 houses, which will be finished, and people will move into the houses next year. So lots lots going on. Um, obviously our 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 uh, podcast is going really well and um, we're looking to advance things next year with the podcast as well we're going to have more events going on which i'm really looking forward to i, I got a great buzz out of the uh the, the, the cop 26 podcast and we're going to break that down now that was like a, a general um overview of everything and we we had uh victoria kate burrows on on with us which was a, a amazing to have such a high profile person in as our main guest on that day and we're looking to see can we get more high profile guests on and really looking forward to being involved in that so so many things coming uh, down the pipeline uh, 2022 is really exciting i'm looking forward to delving into lots of different more subjects with yourself steve they don't always have to be uh the big high profile stuff that's going on we want to get down to the nitty-gritty of of you know just the general stuff that, that happens on day to day on site and we, we're going to try and keep people up to date and give people the the uh the behind the scenes of, of as many of these aspects as we can so lots and lots uh, uh coming up and uh I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to, to what uh, 2022 brings. Absolutely. Well, all that remains then is uh, me to say, Pete, happy new year to you. Cheers, Steve. It was a pleasure to, to work with you all year and I'm really looking forward for the same thing next year. And happy new year, my man. Cheers, Pete. And as this episode comes to an end, a reminder to follow or subscribe using your favourite podcast app to make sure you get new episodes automatically. We'll be back early in January 2022. Until then, happy new year and thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Yeah.